Amen. Um, also wanted to say too, and I, you know, maybe we can get up here and give a testimony. We've been praying for Ruth. Where's Ruth at? She she's in there. Uh, she said that after surgery, her hand is feeling better, her up at night, and so I just want to thank God. That's a blessing to me to hear that. Uh, Trudy's not here this morning. She's probably going to give a testimony too. But how many know that healing from a surgeon is from God? You know, God gave them that gift of healing. And, and I believe that, uh, sometimes God supernaturally will heal you before surgery, sometimes through surgery. And uh, Trudy went and had an appointment Friday, and she uh, has no... Um, no effect, no more uh, issues with the thyroid. It was removed, all the cancer is gone. So I'd just like to praise God. So excited to hear that. And um, so God answers prayers, and uh, and I just want to want to thank God for that. I don't want to forget to thank God. Amen. Praise the Lord. Uh, James, when you came up this morning, where's James? He's still in there. Uh, what'd you read? James chapter one, verse two. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature. Uh, James was uh, talking this morning, encouraging you about uh, going through trials and suffering. Mike was talking about eschatology. Uh, which is the study of the last things and being ready when the Lord comes back. And I just love it when the Holy Spirit preaches my message before I get up here. So praise the Lord. Turn in your Bible, if you would, First Peter. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 7. First Peter, Chapter 4, verse 7. <clears throat> This is from the NIV translation. It says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Which is what Eddie said this morning. Hallelujah. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others, which is what Eddie was talking about this morning. Let's see. Where was I at? Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, if anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides them. So in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, power forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray that you speak your word, Lord God. Lord, hide me behind your cross, Lord God. Glorify yourself, Lord God. Humiliate me, Lord God. Hide me, Lord. Lord, do your work. Have your will. Have your way, Lord God. Lift yourself up in this place. Speak to hearts, Lord God. And we ask all these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. This book, First uh, Peter, um, is a very good book. I was talking to somebody the other day, and a lot of times when you preach a message, uh, a lot of times I'll have people ask me, where do you get all that background information and all the stuff that you're studying and, and talk about it? And I actually, I think we were talking the other night, 
And I said, exegesis. And a lot of people don't know what that word means, and it's not critical that you know what the word means, but what the word means is knowing all the background information and being able to properly interpret the Bible. And one thing I don't want to do, I'm going to really start making a conscious effort to make sure you know where I'm getting all my information from. Because it's very important that God in this place begins to raise up teachers, begins to raise up preachers. And you say, well, where am I going to teach at? Well, where are you going? Where are you going? Are you going to see family? Are you going to see friends? Are you going to see people at work? And I want to raise up people that know how to gather their own food. You know, I don't want people to come hear me preach and say that I'm great at preaching and I've got great background information. I want to teach you how easy it is to gather that information for yourself. So exegesis is finding out everything about, if you're going to study First uh, Peter, um, I'm going to tell you how complicated this was for me to find. I typed in background information for First Peter on my Google search. And it used to be I'd have to put about 15 commentaries in front of me from my library. And I'd piece them all together and I'd come up with all kinds of things, but it took me a long time. And I'd, uh, I'd have to write it all out and I'd have to write a whole summary. Or usually what I'd do is I'd read it and remember it and just do it from memory. And But now I put a Google search and it's time that we start using Google search for something holy. Praise God. So I type it up and, uh, and man, I started looking through all the great teachers, you know, people that have been teaching the word for 40, 50 years, giving me background information. And this particular background information that I've got today is from John MacArthur. How many have ever heard John MacArthur preach? And I really like John MacArthur. He said, well, man, he doesn't believe everything we believe. He knows the word though. And he believes almost exactly what we believe, okay? John MacArthur is one of the best teachers out there. And this is probably 50 years of researching the Bible. He's a very good Bible teacher. And if you want a background of a book, he's one of the best you can go to. So I picked John MacArthur's information here. Now listen, I say that so you can go home and gather the same thing I'm doing in my Bible study. How many can do a Google search? Awesome. Let's do it. Let's begin gathering this information and let's start saying to ourselves, what does the book of First Peter have to teach me? Okay, this is where God led me. The Holy Spirit leads me to speak these words. Okay, the, the book of First Peter was written by Peter. Now, I want you to listen to this. Okay, Peter... In fact, let me skip over a lot of this. I have 13 pages of notes. Peter was actually... This particular book was written around 65... Back 64 to 65 A.D., and you, it's very easy on a Google search to figure out when the book was written. So 64, 65 A.D., Peter writes this book. Now, why is this very important? Okay? I can't read from a paper. I'm sorry. It's very important because something was getting ready to happen in the city of Rome, which is where Peter was at. Peter was so concerned about what was going to happen in Rome, he was actually using cold words to say where he was located at. He said, I am in Babylon, and some of the people knew exactly where he was at. He wasn't in the true Babylon. He was actually in Rome, the city. And uh, Peter, Paul, a few of the different uh, apostles of Christ were about to lose their life. Okay, this is during the persecution of a man named Nero. Now, if you're getting into Bible study, I want you to really start studying the Word like I studied. Google search Nero. Start reading about Nero, okay? This is how magical my studies are, okay? I've got, a, I've got thousands of books at home. 
But study Nero. Nero was a madman. Peter was writing this book about suffering. And get this. As you begin to study the life of Peter, what you begin to realize is he's about to die. He's about to lose his life for being a Christian. Now get this. As you study Peter, you begin to realize Peter traveled around with his wife. Two different places in the Bible says his wife traveled with him. Nero, this is how disgusting this was. Nero literally took Peter's wife and wanted him to watch her be crucified in front of him. Now you talk about suffering. And then Peter, in fact, uh, the historical... um, the historical legends of Peter's wife being crucified is Peter kept saying to her, just remember your Lord. Remember your Lord. Remember your Lord, honey. And he's watching his wife be crucified. Now, what kind of book are we holding in our hand here? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, Jesus Christ's words are in red, but sometimes I think maybe the words that Peter wrote here should be in red. Because then Peter was crucified after his wife was. And Peter was so in love with God and so focused on what this gospel meant to Peter. Peter said, I cannot be crucified like my Lord. I don't deserve to be crucified like my Lord. They just crucified his wife, okay, in front of him. He said, crucify me upside down because I don't deserve to be crucified like my Lord. Now think about this book that he's writing. If you just go read this book and you don't Exegete, and I'm sorry to use a big word. I don't like to use big words and make myself look like I'm using big words here. But if you don't exegete or find the background of these books, how are you going to know that? And you begin to read this book and you don't realize the weight of what he's writing to these people. Peter is actually writing this book to a group of people that are in the region around Rome because Nero went crazy. He had a demonic spirit probably that I talked about a few weeks ago. I mean, he was possessed by, by, by demons probably. I mean, the guy was just out of his mind. And he was so eager, Nero, to build in that city a legacy for himself that most all historians believe that Nero set the city on fire and literally burned all of their... Pagan temples, he burned all of their architecture, burned everything in the city, and then the people were devastated because they were now questioning their gods. Why did our gods not step up and help us? And I mean, this whole city had people, their houses and everything was destroyed. There were people that were homeless all over the city. I mean, everywhere around the city, well, guess who was suffering with the people in the city? Gentile Christians, these mostly weren't Jews. They were people that Paul probably had won to the Lord on his missionary journeys as he went through there. And all these cities around there were beginning to suffer at a high level. The reason why was people were beginning to believe that Nero was the one that burnt the city down. So Nero, in order to keep the heat off of Nero, blamed it on guess who? He blamed it on the Christians. So Peter writes this entire book to try to help Christians deal with suffering. Because he knows they're about to suffer. And I think Peter has an idea that he's probably about to die too. 
And one of the themes that you see all the way through 1 Peter and all the way through the New Testament is they're very clear about the fact that the end is near, that we're in the latter days. And they're very specific about being the latter days, but also this happens, this book is actually written about five years before Jerusalem is going to be completely destroyed. Titus is going to come in and the Bible has prophesied already that this entire city of Jerusalem is just going to be ransacked. So these Christians are everywhere. I mean, they've, they've been sent out all over the place. And it was almost like, you say, well, that's a bad thing. But when these people's idol shrines got destroyed and their gods failed them, guess what they were open to? When there was destruction in Jerusalem and all the Christians were in Jerusalem... Where did they go when the destruction came? God said, hurry up. As soon as you see this get ready to happen, flee the city. So these people fleed Jerusalem and they were all over the place. And everywhere they went, guess what they did? Everyone was preaching the gospel everywhere they went. There was great suffering in the city, but there was great opportunity for God to do mighty things through their life. But here's the thing. They had to learn to deal with suffering. Now remember, everybody was suffering, but the Christians were suffering probably a little more than even the other people because they were blamed. And that's why Nero began to gather the leaders of the Christian faith. Um, He gathered Paul, he gathered gathered Peter, he gathered all these leaders, and, and almost every apostle suffered martyrdom. And so Peter is trying to prepare us in life for suffering. Now how many think... That it's important for us to learn how to suffer correctly. And I mean, there's so many things in life that we're going to suffer. And if we're not careful, we won't suffer correctly. But first, let me start with the end. In fact, the title of my sermon is, The End is is Near. The End is Near. Have you ever seen those signs? Somebody holding a placard up, the end is near. That's what you normally think of. Um, But you know, the Bible, we're living in a time where it's becoming very evident that the end is near. Okay? Their time, it was becoming very clear. In fact, their time is almost identical to our time. All of these apostles recognized that Jerusalem was about to be destroyed. And it was going to be, that, that destruction of Jerusalem in the history of the world is one of the most destructive moments and more loss of life happened on that destruction of Jerusalem than almost any other historical siege in history of the world. I mean, so many people died and it was so uh, graphically bad and difficult. I mean, it was almost like it was apocalyptic, okay? It was such a bad destruction and siege of that city. And you were sitting on the verge of life just dramatically changing. And any prophecy expert, and I'm going to have a hard time, really pray for me, Christians, today. Every prophet, every prophetic teacher and person who studies prophecy, it's almost undeniable that we are on the verge of the end of days. I mean, if you don't recognize that and react accordingly, and that's what he's trying to do, he said, the end is near... And he's giving them advice on how are you going to deal with that. Because if you deal with the end of days the wrong way, there's going to be eternal consequences. 
And there are so many signs right now to the coming of the Lord. In fact, do you know the coming of the Lord? There are signs all through the Bible about the coming of the Lord. This is what's called in Bible study eschatology. It's the study of the last things. Okay, now the second coming of the Lord is basically when the Lord comes back after a seven-year tribulation. How many know that? Now, some people mix that up with the rapture of the church. How many know the rapture of the church is a signless event? There's no notice that is coming for the rapture of the church. It's a signless, dateless event that is just going to suddenly happen. And you say, well, is that in the Bible? You know, there are all kinds of people on the internet that say that the rapture doesn't exist. And you can read that stuff for a while and you can say, man, maybe they're right. The rapture's not going to happen or it's going to happen here, it's going to happen there. Virtually every Bible scholar agrees, including the early church, that that rapture event was going to take place. You say, what about the Jews? Jews don't believe it. How many know that the rapture event was called a mystery by Paul? Jesus actually, when he was in the upper room discourse, was very clear that I will expound to you the new things that are getting ready to happen whenever I see you again. And they began to expound, including Paul, who actually had a vision from heaven about what was going to happen with the rapture of the church. And the Old Testament, they don't teach it. The Jews aren't looking for the rapture. The Jews are looking for the coming of the Lord in judgment. Okay, they're looking for the coming of the Lord, which happens after the rapture. Is everybody following me? But the rapture of the church has no signs. And the rapture of the church is an event that was a mystery that Jesus only delivered to his church. So if we don't catch this rapture of the church, we will go through this tribulation. And you say, well, wait a minute, Chad, aren't you preparing us to be in the tribulation? Here's the problem. If you're so focused on the tribulation and making it through the tribulation, you're going to miss the rapture. And if you're so focused on the Antichrist being revealed, which the Bible says he won't be revealed till we're gone, you won't do a single thing for the church. And the Bible says, let's be busy winning the lost. Let's be busy going after the lost and building God's kingdom in this world. And how can we be busy building the kingdom when all we're talking about is signs and dates and the Antichrist? Okay, I'm not going to be here when the Antichrist is here. I'm glad there's information for those who are called the earth dwellers. There's a whole doctrine in the Bible about the earth dwellers during that seven year period. We're called the heavenly dwellers during that seven year period. I want to be a heavenly dweller. I plan on being a heavenly dweller. Okay? I do not want you to miss the rapture of the church. In fact, one good analogy that I've seen is how many know that Thanksgiving, there's not a whole lot of advertisements about Thanksgiving. In fact, as soon as uh, the end of uh, October happens, everything begins to be about Christmas. And all you see is advertising, sales, shopping. Everything's about Christmas, but nothing is about Thanksgiving. You say, well, what's that have to do with eschatology? Because every sign of the second coming of Christ is a shadow of the rapture of the church. You say, well, wait a minute. When the things about Christmas start to happen, you know that Thanksgiving is drawing nigh. Okay, when you begin to see the shadow of prophecy cast its shade, 
You know the second coming of the Lord is getting really close. Second coming of the Lord is really close. The rapture of the church is dangerously close. If you see Christmas is really close, it might already be the week before Thanksgiving. You understand what I'm saying? There's a signless event called the rapture of the church and some of you aren't going to be ready and sure enough, some of the people that you love will not be ready because you're all talking about the Antichrist and the signs and blood moons. All right, I'm talking about advancing the church and being what God's called the church to be. And I'm talking about winning as many of the lost as we can win before this thing all wraps up. And you say, well, what are the signs? What are the signs of his coming? Let me read a few of the signs of his coming. Number one, this is one of the biggest signs of his coming. It says, Ezekiel 37 He said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying we have become old dry bones. Our hope is gone. Now give them this message from the sovereign Lord. O my people, I will open the graves of their exile. I will cause them to rise again. Then I will bring them back to their land in Israel. When this happens, O my people, you will know that I am the Lord. You begin to go through Ezekiel 36 and 37 and some of the most amazing prophecies are yelling at the top of their lungs. The end is near. There's never been a time that Israel has been back in that land since Titus destroyed it. And then all of a sudden, in fact, it says that all of their hope will be gone and they will be in graves of exile Do you know that the most hopeless time that's ever existed in the Jewish people is the time of the Holocaust? How many know that? It was hopeless. They were helpless. They had no chance. They were about to be decimated as a people. But God, God raised up prophecy and he said there's going to come a day. In fact, in Ezekiel it says... It literally says, in the last day, I will bring my people back to their land. So God resurrects a people in Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37, and he begins to regather this nation back into their land. He said, who has ever heard of such a thing? In one day, they became a nation. He said, when has that ever happened? I have a book at home, a really old book of somebody that was an eyewitness the day they were walking into Jerusalem. I mean, there was, there was one man, he was 70 years old and was carrying his 100-year-old dad on his shoulders and came into Israel, laid him on the ground, the soil in Israel, and his dad died. He said his dad, uh, God had told him that he would see the land again. And on the day that they walked in, he laid him down and he died. They went into a desert and God said that I'm going to make the desert begin to bloom. I'm going to make the economy begin to flourish. I'm going to, and, and all these prophecies are coming to life before our eyes. And there's one prophecy. There's another. In fact, as you go to Ezekiel 36 and 37, God says after they get back into the land, then there's another prophecy. And this is, this is really amazing. And there's a little bit of debate with commentators here. But you get in Psalms chapter 83. How many have ever read Psalms 83? Psalms 83 talks about a coalition of nations. It's uh, very dramatic. A coalition of nations that would include... Where's my coalition? 
The nations in the coalition would include Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, and Lebanon. These nations um, of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Amalek, Tyre, Assyria, and the Hagrites. There are five nations that are mentioned there along with the Palestinian organization. And here's what happens. Psalms 83, which is a prophetic psalm, says there's going to be a war. Now I personally, and a lot of different um, prophetic teachers will teach you that that is the exact coalition in 1967 that came against Israel. Israel became a nation and all this confederate of armies decided we will no longer be a nation. In Psalm 83 it says, they will say, we will wipe Israel off of the map. They will no longer exist as a nation. That's what's on their tongue in Psalm 83. Listen to this, quotes. Leading up to the 67 war. This is the president of Egypt. We shall enter Palestine with its soil covered in sand. We shall enter it with its soil saturated in blood. President of Egypt. February the 22nd. This is the president of Syria. It is our duty of us all now to move from defensive positions to offensive positions. Enter the battle to liberate the land that they usurped. Everyone must face the test and enter the battle to the very end. Syria's information minister. Uh, there will be severe battles until Palestine is liberated and the Zionist presence is ended. Uh, Cairo, Egypt. The existence of Israel has continued for too long. We welcome the Israeli aggression. We welcome the battle that was long awaited. The peak hour has come. The battle has come in which we shall destroy Israel. Do you realize Psalm 83, I believe, was fulfilled in that war? The nations that were all around Israel. Now, some commentators will say, no, that one will happen right before the Gog and Magog war in Ezekiel 38. But here's the fact. Either it was fulfilled in 67 or it's about to be fulfilled. And all these nations came around Israel and there was no way. Tiny Israel, in fact, uh, I forgot to put it in here, but if you look at the amount of tanks, the amount of airplanes, the amount of uh, ammunition, the amount of weapons, everything that these nations had... They should have wiped Israel off of the map. But God. God is fulfilling the end day signs at a pace that is so dramatic, we can't even hardly keep up with it. And now these coalition nations, and this is what's so amazing, the coalitions of these wars have never been, um, that group of nations has never in history went against Israel until that war. The coalition nations in Ezekiel 38 is a whole different set of nations. And if you watch prophecy and you read and you listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying, Ezekiel 38 is going to be led, and I won't go through the, the, um, the linguistics of each of the nations that are there, but it says it will be led by Russia. And Russia will be joined by the areas that are now Turkey. Anybody ever seen this Erdogan that's in Kentucky? Or Kentucky. Erdogan that's in Turkey. Turkey in Kentucky. <laughs> Erdogan is very vocal about his opposition to Israel and he's, and he's, and he's building a massive army. Russia, it says, will be the leader of coalition. Ezekiel 38 and 39, do the magic of Google and begin reading about the Ezekiel 38-39 war. What am I saying? I'm saying the end is really near. I wouldn't be a very good pastor if I didn't preach this. It says Russia will be the leader, and it says God 
will put a hook in Russia's mouth and will drag Russia along. And Russia, they will be saying in their mouth, we will plunder them economically and take all of the things that they have, which is very valuable. He says that he will put a hook in their mouth and drag them. Now, here's what's amazing about it. I think it was around 2010. Israel, how many know that Israel discovered um, a reserve of gas underneath their, their land? It's called Leviathan Gas Fields. How many have ever heard of that? And this massive, massive, massive reserve of gas has completely changed the Middle East. In fact, Russia was the big dog. Russia was the one that was going to build a pipeline to Europe and they were going to make a fortune and it was going to be a massive economic gain for Putin who probably is the richest man in the world. They say that the value that Putin has in Russia is makes uh, Bill Gates look like a uh, uh, impoverished. He has so much money. They say maybe $50 billion he's worth. And he had this pipeline that was preparing to connect Russia with Europe, and he was going to sign all these big contracts. And then all of a sudden, Israel in the trillions, we measured in the trillions this gas pipeline that they have now developed. In 2019, in fact, I have all the contracts they just signed with Europe. And they've signed all these contracts economically with Europe. Right now, per capita, Israel is the most prosperous nation in the world, according to the U.N., and right now, that pipeline is going to open in 2019, and look who is, who is going to suffer the most from that pipeline. Russia. Who is foaming at the mouth to fight Russia? Turkey. Who are the other nations that are involved? Iran. Uh, all of these Muslim nations that are currently aggressively wanting to destroy Israel, right now they're all allies. Nowhere in history have they ever been allies But right now they're allies and there's an economic reason why you would want to overthrow Israel. And it's amazing to me, in fact the Bible says, who can take Leviathan with a hook by the mouth? Because Leviathan was the greatest of all the creatures that God created. He says, who can take, he was talking about how great he was in Job. He said, my wisdom is so much greater than yours, Job. He goes, who can take Leviathan with a hook and, 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 and pull him in? I got your answer. Leviathan. Isn't it amazing that God uses the reference hook in their mouth and I'm going to pull them in? I mean, it's amazing. These prophecies rapidly. In fact, I could go through a hundred prophecies that are being fulfilled at this very moment. I mean, Jerusalem is the one you really want to watch. But there are a million prophecies that I could go through right now. And I've spent... 30 years studying these prophecies that are that are coming to pass before our eyes. And if you don't know it right now, the end of our days are very near. Now, Peter wants to know, how are you going to react to the last days? What is the behavior that Peter recommends for the last days? More science. Listen to this. Jesus says, <clears throat> I don't want to waste my notes. I made 13 pages of notes. She said, your notes are such a waste, you never read them, my wife. So I don't want to, I want to read some of them here. 
Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 3 to 8, Later Jesus sat on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and asked, When will all of this take place, and will there be any signs ahead of time to signal your return and the end of the world? Jesus told them, Don't let anybody mislead you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah. They will lead many astray, and wars will break out near and far, but don't panic. Yes, these things must come, but the end it won't follow immediately. The nations and kingdoms will proclaim war against each other. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but this will all only be the beginning of the horrors that are to come. If you look up that word horrors, it's different in each translation, the word that they use, but it literally means birth pangs. That those are beginning birth pangs, and when you see them dramatically increase in a generation, then that's the generation that will be there at the end. And, and, and if you look at it, listen to this. 15th century, there were 29 wars. 16th century, 59. Next century, 75, 69. 19th century, 294. 20th century, 278. And already in this decade, there's 550 Wars in the last 100 year period. I would say that's an increase in birth pangs, wouldn't you? An increase. Well, what about earthquakes? My famines is next to my notes. 15th century, six famines. 16th century, 10 famines. 17th century, 24 famines. 18th century, 28. 19th century, 30. 20th century, 44. And the first decade of this century has already had 12. Sounds to me like it's increasing the birth pangs. How many have noticed a lot of unusual weather patterns around the world? And if we're blind, we won't recognize that the end is near. Earthquakes. How many have noticed an increase in earthquakes? Fifteenth century, two. Sixteenth century, three. Seventeenth century, seven. This is seven or seven point or greater. I'm sorry, seven point or, or greater. Great earthquakes. There were two in the fifteenth, three in the sixteenth, seven in the seventeenth, thirteen in the eighteenth century, twenty in the nineteenth century. Now get this: it went from it went from twenty to hundred and twenty-three, and so far in the first decade of this century. There's been 144 7.0 or greater. Think about it. The birth pangs are getting greater. And God wants to know how are we going to react to it. You know what the reaction of some people are? And you can just look around and see your neighbors and talk to them about this. One is panic. Put my fingers in my ear and don't tell me about it. I want to live it up while I'm here and just don't tell me about it. I don't want to know about it. They avoid it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. And they avoid it. And there's no way that we, if we love the people around us, we even love, you know, our own future. We can't deal with it like that. We can't say, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to hear it. These uh, prophecies in the Bible, if you study prophecy, you really study it out. They're so amazing that you just can't ignore it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's... It's, it's impossible for these uh, prophecies to be fulfilled. Uh, another way that people deal with it is, man, I'm going to worry about it. I'm going to have so much anxiety. I'm going to be afraid. How many know that a lot of people don't want me to teach on prophecy 
because it makes them afraid. We were singing that song this morning, uh, several songs about, man, this isn't our home. You know, this isn't our home. This isn't where God, uh, God went to prepare a place. And he said, if I'm going to prepare a place, why would I tell you that if I didn't have a place prepared and ready for you? And actually, that's, he said that promise when he started revealing to them for the first time that there was going to be a rapture of the church. He started to say, I'm building a place for you. You're going to go there with me. And, then, and the Jewish minds were thinking, wait a minute, that don't make any sense. That's not any part of what we've been taught because we're waiting for the coming of the Lord. And he said, I'm going to explain more about this mystery for the church. And it's the rapture of the church. So some people don't want to hear it, though. They have too much anxiety, too much... And then other people, they're so caught up in the seven-year tribulation and the Antichrist that they're building bunkers. You know, they're ready to take on the Antichrist. They're ready to deal with the mark of the beast. And they're so worried about all these things that they're no good for God in this world. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm just saying that the reason why the early church, every time they talk about the last days, they're not saying get ready for the Antichrist. They're saying the Antichrist will be revealed when we're gone. When we're gone, the Antichrist will be revealed. And you know what the early church is doing? They're advancing the kingdom of God, loving each other, and doing everything they can to live for God. Here's the advice Peter gives. I missed a lot of good notes here. The rise of global governments. Man, I spared you this morning. Listen to the advice that Peter gives here in chapter 4 of 1 Peter. First of all, he says in chapter 4 at the beginning, he says, Look, he said, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude that Christ had. So what is the attitude that Christ had? Jesus Christ, how many have ever, Jesus Christ knew that he was going to suffer, didn't he? And when the cross came to Jesus Christ, he didn't act like we act a lot of times. In fact, you know that Jesus Christ, his view, his whole life was what the end was going to be? In fact, he always had eternity in mind, and that's why the Bible says that we should arm ourselves with the same mind that he had. Let me give you an example. When you get ready to go to the gym, do you not arm yourself with a mind that you know you're going to suffer? And if that is your mindset, all right, you don't think to yourself it's going to be pleasant, it's going to be enjoyable, it's going to be wonderful. You have armed yourself with the mind to suffer. But you're eager to do it because you know through that suffering there's going to be a gain. You know, uh, when you go to the dentist, do you ever go to the dentist and say to yourself, I'm not prepared to suffer? You know that when you go to the dentist, there's going to be a measure of suffering. And this is all he's saying in this passage is you know there's going to be a benefit when you suffer when you go to the dentist because you know your problem hopefully will be gone by the time that he gets done with his work. When you go to the surgeon... You know that I have to go through this, even though I might have to get a shot, you know, to numb the pain. 
I know that I'm going to arm myself because it's good for me. And the Bible says in the last days, your mind has to be like the mind of Christ where he knew he was going to suffer, but the end is what he had in mind. And some of us, when we get suffering, we're like the guy on the way to the gym and we suffer a little bit and we just get mad. Think of God away and we just say, I'm done with God because I suffered. And what God's saying is, these people in 1 Peter, Peter was about to watch his wife be crucified. You know, Peter was about to be crucified upside down. Okay, And God is saying that we're going to have suffering in this life. And he's saying, go through it like this. First of all, you need to have the mind of Christ. Now, now, now look what he says here. 1 Peter chapter 4. I want you to turn there with me real quick. I know I'm going long. First Peter chapter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Clear-minded. Do you know what that means in the Greek? That literally means to have the right mind. The right frame of mind. For what reason? So you'll be able to pray. Didn't you read the scripture earlier that says when we go through the perseverance... God is going to make us mature. God is going to teach us to be able to pray. Well, what is the mind of Christ? Do you know that when Jesus was on the cross and God had forsaken him completely? Do you know that he quoted, in fact, let me read it here. He quoted Psalms. He's dying on the cross. The blood is coming out of his body. He's been spat upon. He's been literally almost filleted where his guts are hanging out. He's naked on a cross. The amount of pain that he is suffering while being crucified has to be amazing. And he's on the cross quoting scripture. Why would Jesus quote scripture on the cross? I've got too many notes today. I want to give you the verses. Wow. You have to trust me on this. I think it's Psalm 22. But he says, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? He said, well, why is that impressive? The reason it's impressive is because he knew that God's will was for him to suffer. So he was quoting the scriptures. He said, well, what's that have to do with me being in my right mind? God wants you through suffering to be in your right mind. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm going to show you how I found this too. In fact, here it is, Psalm 22.1, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Psalm 31.5, he says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. He was quoting scripture. What happened when he was tempted? Every time he was tempted, he began to quote scripture. He was in his right mind. Like everything in his life, he found that there is a purpose for what God is taking me through. So he always related a scripture to everything that he was going through in life. Let me give you an example here. Fear. Some of you are not in your right mind. Now listen to me. I know everybody's getting restless here, but fear has caused some of you not to be in your right mind. So how do you get in your right mind? Let me show you how complicated, how much of a theologian I have to be to do this. Type in scriptures about fear. All right, you say, well, I don't know the Bible that well. Use Google. Okay, here's what came up. Isaiah 41.10. 
So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. When you're afraid, how do you keep your right mind? Remember, you can't deal with suffering and you can't survive the end of days unless you're rethinking your mind. When fear comes, I should have about ten scriptures that are going through my mind. Jesus is dying on the cross. He's quoting scripture because he knows that's what God's called him to do is be on that cross. When I'm going through fear, what has God called you to do? Go through fear. Go through it. How do you get in your right mind when you're afraid? Find the scriptures. Find the word that will get you through that. When Jesus is tempted, he says, hey, I'll give you all these kingdoms. I'll give you all these kingdoms if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus hadn't eaten for like 40 days. And he's like, you know what? Love the Lord your God. You know what? Man won't live by bread alone. I don't need your food. Everything that he was tempted with, he gave scripture. Fear. Psalm 56.3. You were actually saying this, Ariel. You were quoting scripture. Do you notice he was quoting scripture to beat depression? Fine. Just, just go home and say, scripture's about depression. Scripture's about fear. Scripture's about anxiety. And start remembering those and believe those for your life. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, John 14, 27, 2 Timothy 1, 7, 1 John 4, 18. Scripture about pain and suffering. This is what Peter's really saying. How do we deal with suffering in life? I googled it. Scripture's about suffering. The pain won't last forever. He will wipe away the tears from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more grief, no more crying, no more pain. The old things have disappeared. Revelation 21, 4. That's our promise. Praise God even when it's hard. That's Psalm 43, 5. Why am I so sad? Why am I so troubled? I will put my hope in God. And once again, I will praise Him, my Savior and my God. David spoke that in a cave. How do I know that? I googled it. David was depressed in a cave and he quoted that scripture over and over until he felt better about his life. God was turning him into a king. By the time he walked out of that cave, he was a king. He walked in depressed. Give your burden to God, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all of you who are tired from carrying heavy loads. I will give you rest. When you're weak, God is strong, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. His answer was, my grace is all you need. My power is the greatest when you are weak. I am most happy then to be proud of my weaknesses in order to feel the protection of God's power over my life. Man, these are promises. Praise God. Keep your eyes on Jesus, Psalm 34, 4 and 5. I prayed to the Lord and he answered me. He freed me from all my fears. The oppressed looked to him and they were glad. They will never be disappointed. Praise the Lord. Stand to your feet this morning. I could go on a long time. I'm sorry. Worship team. And I'm just going to close in a word of prayer. If you need prayer, I'm going to be up here. We're going to worship for a few minutes. You're, You're dismissed after I pray here. But I just want to tell you. That whole book is about suffering. And if we want answers to suffering, if we want answers, the the end is very near. And God wants us to focus on Him in prayer. In fact, the other part was, 
have the right mind and also be sober-minded.